0: Well, good morning. It is an exciting day, not just because it's Super Bowl Sunday, um, which I am excited about. Um, It's only come across a couple times in my lifetime that I've actually got to watch the Eagles in the Super Bowl. One time I was very little and I wore everything that I had. I put on like Eagles underwear, Eagles uh, socks, I had Eagles jeans. I had an Eagles shirt. I put on an Eagles-like entire like winter coat, the, the, the cap, gloves, everything, and they lost. Um, the next time, I actually went to the Super Bowl, and I was there, and Donovan McNabb like, threw up right in front of me, and I was like, Oh, we've lost. Um, but today is going to be a different day, I, I think. Um, at least next week, I'll be saying something else. But anyway... It is an exciting morning because uh, we get to witness uh, three people actually visually demonstrate uh, the new life that they have in Jesus and proclaim that he is actually the king that's worth giving their life to as they get baptized today. And and they're going to do that through telling of their story in a few minutes and what God has done for them. And as well as be baptized as really an outward sign of what God is doing in their hearts. And so as we think about baptism, baptism is really really a, a visual representation of people that are in need of rescuing, in need of having their sins washed away um, as they go under the water and as they come back up. Um, it symbolizes what really happened in their life, that they were once dead but are now alive in Christ. And so, so we're going to get to do that. My wife's going to make me cry. Um <laughs> Um, Eagles haven't even come on yet. Um, I will cry today probably sometime. Bef- if we win, I'll cry. If if we lose, I'll cry. Um, there's going to be some tears somewhere. Um, um, sometimes I cry thinking about it, uh, but anyway, um, before I have them come up and share, um, I want to take a few minutes and I want to talk about Jesus and brag about Jesus for a few minutes. Um, you see, from the very beginning of the Bible, we find out that the world, the universe, um, life, everything is actually derived from God. That God is the author and the creator of everything. That everything that was created was actually designed to reflect His greatness and His glory. Brad, can you shut that back door for me, please? Um, Thanks. Um, What we also see in the beginning is that God creates humans in His image. And he, He gives them a role, really, to take care of His stuff. To reflect Him to the world. Really, He gives them this role of a steward. A steward is a person who who acts on the behalf of someone else, really as an agent of that person. So in order to make sure that humans really knew how to live and how to take care of the world as God would take care of it, He spends time daily with them and he spends time with these first humans and he walks with them and he he pours out his life to them and he teaches them and he shows them his love for them. And he gives them everything they need um, to live in his ways and everything they need to live on this world and to do and to steward and to steward the stuff that he's given them. Yet, if you know the story, these first humans really didn't choose. They choose something else. They choose to believe the lie of of a created being instead of God's words. They choose to really trust in themselves. They choose to trust in their own ability to manage good and evil. Really, in many ways, they choose to steward for themselves rather than act act as, as agents of God. And as you know, this act of pride, really, it creates judgment and separation from God. And those broken relationships with God and with each other and sickness and pain and death enter the world for the very first time. The perfect creation that God created, the perfect relationships that God made were destroyed. And these humans are cast out of the garden, cast out of God's presence to live in brokenness that they've created. What's amazing about this story is that despite their rebellion, God is still merciful to them. And he he graciously promises to them that he's going to send someone who's going to restore them back to the original position that they had prior to their um, falling away in perfect standing with him. Now that may sound kind of old or trite. We've probably heard that before, right? But this is really such a very twist in the story. It's like you and me really waking up um, and going to work for a company. And we go out to, to visit some clients. And, and we convince them that they should should buy whatever we're selling. And, and we take their money. And rather than going back to the company and turning the money in, we spend it on ourselves. And we go and we sp- we do this over and over again. and And, and the clients never get what they're promised. And the CEO finally finds out um, and, and he comes to you and, and he fires you as he should, right? Um, but when he fires you, he also makes this promise to you that he's going to pay back all the money that you squandered, that you've stolen. And when he does that, he's going to, after he pays it back, he's going to restore you back to the position you had with all of the benefits you had before that. That's crazy talk. That doesn't happen. That's, that's foolish in our minds. And yet, that is what God does. And as we see this story unfold in the Bible, we see many other people come along and they try to be stewards of God's stuff and yet fail miserably. They fail in the ability to image God correctly. And in fact, we all do the same exact thing. We do the same as these first humans. We we live for ourselves and we live for our own glory and for our own things. And as we follow the story, we see God all along. He never wavers from his promise to keep what He's what he said he was going to do. He keeps saying that he's going to send one to restore the brokenness. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God in many ways drop these little breadcrumbs along and say, there's a prophet coming like Moses. There's a perfect lamb to be sacrificed. There's a perfect king that's better than David. And these, we get all of these little breadcrumbs dropped along as the promised one, and they culminate in the arrival of Jesus, God's own Son, the Redeemer, the Savior, and we see the climax of the story, and the hero comes into view, and it's Jesus, and he's born on Christmas morning. We've just celebrated that, but I want us to kind of jump in, into the book. If you want to look at the book of Mark, if you have your Bibles, you can open that. Um, and we see here in the book of Mark is, is really the, the beginning of Jesus making himself publicly known, um, he was publicly like, announced as his birth, but really himself making himself publicly known. We have this scene of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And so Mark writes about this. And just a little side note about Mark is Mark really writes from the perspective of a servant who's been served. If you know anything about Mark's life, Mark was has really a picture of restoration. He's a guy who failed often. He's a guy who even deserted Jesus. He deserts others along the way. And yet God continues to pursue him, continues to call him, God restores him, and God uses Mark to write this book and, and to lead the church. And, and, God, and God uses him to serve others and to help others and to care for the needs of others. Really, in many ways, God uses him to steward the heart of God to humans while he was walking, while Mark was still alive. And so Mark writes from this perspective of one who has been served, who now lives the life of service, and he tells the good news of Jesus. And so I, I want to pick up reading in verse 9, and this we have this scene of Jesus being baptized. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so Mark begins this, this story of, of Jesus, and he, he tells us where Jesus came from, Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. And, and to know this is not just some, some random note of information. He's actually telling us something here. In fact, he clarifies where Jesus came from by adding the word Galilee. So the, the Galileans would have known where Nazareth was, but most people would not have. Nazareth was a small arch. Um, agricultural, architectural, agricultural village settled by just a few dozen families. It was a village that was so small and so insignificant that most people had never, ever even heard of it. Josephus, who is a, a well-known um, historian of that day, um, wrote about the, 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 the towns there. He wrote about the cities and the towns. He wrote about 45 cities and 63 towns in the, in the Galilee region. And he doesn't mention Nazareth. It's not that it didn't exist, it was just, it didn't even fit into one of those categories for him, and it wasn't even worth mentioning because it was so small and so insignificant. And so Jesus is known all throughout Galilee as Jesus of Nazareth. But those who who weren't from there would have no idea really where he was from. It's almost like saying that that Trip is from Vets Park. Most people in L.A. wouldn't even know what that is, but if you... you to them that it's actually a neighborhood here in culver city but if you live in culver city you kind of know you would know where that is most of the time people would have to explain that 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 nazareth was actually near um, near the hometown of jonah and the hometown of john the baptist to just kind of give people some references mark is setting the stage of his story here he's giving some little details that the readers of that time would have begun to pick up these hints of who jesus is where, you'd, where, you'd, where you lived and where you came from said a lot about who you were in that society. Where it placed you in a social level. Where your family was from and, and where you lived defined who you could be and what you could do. Now, that's not as blatant in our culture in this country. We have freedom, right, to, to rise from where you were born, to do whatever you want to do, to be whatever you want to be, right? But there's still some of this in our culture. People are often defined by who you are and, and where you've lived, if you're from Beverly Hills, we have this idea of something about you, right? We have this picture of who you are and what you're probably going to do. That We're probably going to think you're probably smart. Or, or, you, or you, you maybe, maybe not. Or you, at least you've got some money, right? And, and you can do whatever you want. You may not be smart, but you can buy it, right? Um, but if you're from South Central, that's going to define who you are. We mask it a little bit differently. But there's still social biases and racism and even badges of honor from the places that we live in. I grew up in Philly. That's why I love the Eagles. Um, and, and Philly really has this, this, um, this badge of honor of us against the world culture. It's a city that's often looked down on as not being as great as New York or not as significant as Washington, D.C. to the south. It's like sandwiched in between these things. And it's a city that holds this badge of, of really the underdog. That's why we wear the masks, right? Um, and and that rises up to win. It's why Rocky is our favorite movie. Um, we hold this badge of, of toughness together uh, around this statue of, of like that this is who we are. This is us people. We're us against the world. And so Jesus coming from Nazareth is really a significant piece of the story. And Mark is using it to describe how the most significant one, the God of the universe himself, takes the least significant role of a servant so that we might become significant. So that he might move us from poor to rich, from broken to restored, from orphans to children of God. The children of the king. So Jesus becomes as this servant king. And if we fast forward to the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we'll see the sign that Pilate puts above his head. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Really, Jesus, king of the Jews from nowhere. From nowhere. It's both a mockery and a statement of truth at the same time. That Jesus has done the impossible to come from nowhere to become king. And that's the good news is that is really what God has done. That is really what he has done. He has come from nowhere to be our king. God came in the form of a servant so that he could make a way for us to be king, to have, not for us to be king, for us to be sons of the king. He came to make a way for us to once again be stewards of him by restoring our hearts so that, that, that we could actually live out the life that he calls us to. See, the good news is that Jesus did what no one else could do, that no amount of hard work could do, that no amount of pulling up by our bootstraps or no amount of education could do or no amount of money could ever buy. He did what we can't even do ourselves. See, only Jesus can move us from a place of insignificance to a place of significance. Only Jesus can redefine and give us the good news that when we repent from our struggle to make it on our own, to make ourselves holy by ourselves, and we choose Jesus and His righteousness over our own righteousness, He graciously redefines us and gives us new life, gives us a new identity, an identity that, that where you no longer have to look for others' approval. You no longer have to find your worth in where you came from or what you do. Regardless of where you are, you're completely loved and completely cared for as a son and daughter of the King. Part of a new family whose home is secure in the presence of God. You see, if you don't know that to be true, if that's never something you've experienced in your life, the power of Jesus to transform your heart, I want to tell you, there is rest for you today. There is rest for your soul. He says, Come, I've come to serve you. Come to me. I've done what you can't do. Stop striving. I will give you significance. And so Mark introduces Jesus this way as Jesus of Nazareth. And he's baptized by John. And he enters. And and I said earlier that baptism is really an outward sign of the gospel that we're in need of being rescued um, and that we're in need of Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus didn't get baptized that way. He's not here being baptized as a, as a means of representation of, of repentance. I mean, um, Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't have any sins to confess. He was perfect. What Jesus is doing here is he's actually identifying with humanity. It's Jesus' way of saying, I'm identifying with your rebellion and I'm going to rescue you from that rebellion. I'm going to give you a picture of my death and me rising from the dead. And here, as I proclaim my, my new ministry, his baptism here is really foreshadowing the cross and foreshadowing the empty tomb that he's going to walk out of. And Jesus comes out of the water and it says the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended him on bodily form like a dove. It probably didn't look like a dove, it probably just kind of came down like a dove. It didn't, wasn't just a bird flying around. Um, maybe it flew down like an eagle. I don't know. Um, Got to fit that in there somewhere, right? Matt told me to fit it in. Um, he, was telling, he said, you'll fit it in there somewhere this morning. Um, but what God does is he says, what does he say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't do anything in terms of ministry yet. And yet the father looks at him and says, I love Him and I'm pleased with Him because He's my Son. Can I tell you, that should give us a clue about how God sees you and me. He's not pleased by any of our good works or what you might have done or how well you even steward His image. He loves you and He's pleased with you because you're His child, not because of anything else that you could do or will do in the future. At the cross and at the resurrection, Jesus takes all the sin, all the rebellion, basically all humans who looked at God and flipped him the middle finger and said, I don't need you. You don't satisfy me. I can find it somewhere else. You are not good. You are not God. I've got this figured out. And what does he do? He comes and he gets dirty and he lives in the muck of human existence and he takes all of that heart rebellion and he piles it on himself so that he might freely give righteousness to you and to me. That is the great climax of the story that redemption is here. Redemption is available to all who believe. To all who say, Jesus, take my penalty. Jesus, be my righteousness. Restore me. And he offers that to us. He offers that to each of you today to be restored back to God, to be restored back to the way he originally designed humans to live. And you don't have to do anything to get it, except to repent and believe that Jesus is enough and that he's freely offered it to you. That is such good news I don't know if that's good news to you, but that's really good news to me. It's better than the eagles winning, right? It is. It's such good news, but it doesn't end there. When Jesus returns to heaven, he doesn't just um, do this, and he he re-gives us his kids, that same job he gave to the first humans. He says, go display my image to others. As Jesus returns, um, he offers this up to people. He says, Go therefore, in Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, Go tell people in both word and deed how I came to restore the world. Make disciples of me, not you. Live again as stewards of my image. You see, how we actually steward the gospel says a lot about what you believe. You are saying something about the character and nature of God by how well or how poorly we steward the gospel. What we do is always an indication of what we believe. Our actions always really reveal the theology that we believe in our heart. We talk about this, that, that all of life is discipleship. And we are discipling people all the time. But a big part of discipling people in the ways of God is actually calling people to make a decision to follow Jesus and not just live like we do in community with one another. But actually to have an understanding of the reason why we live this way. You see, a good steward is actually driven by faith and obedience. A good steward says, I trust in God. I trust that God can actually speak through me to work. God can actually work above the awkwardness of what this may bring into my relationship if I call them into Jesus. See, a poor steward, on the other hand, is is driven by unbelief. A poor steward says, I really don't trust God. I don't think he knows how to best use the gospel. I fear what other people may think about me. I care more about what they say in that relationship than what he says. See, at the heart of broken stewardship is really unbelief in God. It's really basically listening to the same lies that the first humans listened to. Did God really provide enough for you? Is he sufficient for all of your needs? Did he really give you the Holy Spirit to actually speak through you? Is His grace important enough to, for me to actually actively share with other people? At the heart of all bad stewardship is unbelief. We doubt the character of God. We doubt the words of God. And it leads to poor stewardship because we stop using what He's given us for His glory. We stop caring about what He thinks. And we think more about what other people think. You see, if we go back to the garden, these first humans got to walk past the tree every day in the middle of the garden that God placed there as a reminder to them that, that He had given them everything that they needed. They walked past this tree of life. It was this, it was this opportunity for them to, to walk past and, and for them to see, believe God's words and to believe that what He said is true and did not believe that to, to encounter death. It wasn't that this fruit was some kind of magical fruit. Really, it was at the heart of God, wanted them to trust Him and to demonstrate by how they believed, by how they obeyed. Now, we don't have a tree in the middle of, of L.A. anymore. There's not many trees anywhere here in L.A., but, but um, we don't have the tree in the middle of the garden like Adam and Eve did to be reminded of that opportunity. But the good news is that God said, I will make a way. I will make a way to fix your poor stewardship. I will go to the tree so that you have a far greater tree to look at. Not some created tree, but the Creator hanging on the tree. I will endure pain and suffering. I will endure the wrath of the Father for your disobedience so that I can make a way to give you everything you need in life. And I will do it for you and I will freely give it to you. You see, if we're going to steward the image of God, it's going to require us looking at the cross and each day being reminded of the hope of the resurrection. You see, because Jesus is alive, the good news of the gospel is that we can have life both now and in the future. It's not just some future reality. The gospel makes us alive right now. I can show you in 1 Peter, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The gospel that we get to steward has ramifications every day. It is a living hope that we get to walk in and that we get to live in joy in regardless of what is going on around us because God is with us both now and He gives us life in the future. Romans eight eleven says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised you from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The good news is that when we die, when this life is over, we still get God. We not only get him now, but we also get him in the future. We get to be in his presence with full joy, his full presence. How amazing is that? Why wouldn't we share that with other people? Why wouldn't we be talking about that all the time? Instead of giving you and me what we deserve for our rebellion, instead of giving us the judgment that you and I deserve, He offers us forgiveness and grace. He says, I'm a gracious God. Here I am. I've set up my kingdom and you will get to rule and reign alongside of me. That's good news. And God's message never changes. It's the same message in the Old Testament. It's the same message Jesus gives in His ministry. And it's the same message that I just gave you here today that as we believe the gospel, Jesus is the only one who can offer grace. And he says, repent and come to me and I will show you grace. That's really good news. It's good news that we we need to be reminded of often. I was only supposed to talk for 10 minutes, but I couldn't because it's such good news. It's good news that, that God has been gracious to you and me. He's redefined us. He's given you and me a new identity. We no longer have to serve lesser gods. You no longer have to worship other things. You no longer have to find a better job or a better career or find a career or someone else's opinions. They don't matter anymore. Jesus has been gracious to you and me, and Jesus is better than anything else. He is the gracious one. So I'm going to stop. Because we've got four people that are going to come up and share their stories and tell you why Jesus is better than anything else they've found in their life. And so I'm going to ask um, Ricky if he would come first. And Ricky, um, Ricky actually got baptized like a couple weeks ago, months ago. Um, but we want him to share his story with you. And so you won't actually see him get wet, but we promise that he did. Um, and so I'll have Ricky come first. Um, if you want to share your story, and then after Ricky, we'll ask um, Allie to come, and then Miles, and then Juan.
1: Got that? Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so we're going to a few like short things. We're about to come and take communion. Uh, There's a few things that we get to do as believers, practices, rituals, even if we're allowed to use that word. Uh, One is uh, communion that we do all the time for the rest of our lives. We each time we go to the bread and the wine, we remember Christ's body and blood shed for us, uh, given for us, and we remember the story. Um, So. From now on, uh, Juan and Ricky and Miles and Allie, they will remember that story of of how Christ has redeemed and restored and raised them up. And then the other thing that we do, and it's like a once in a lifetime thing, is be baptized. Uh, it's a public, it's like a wedding ceremony. Like, uh, we're all here to observe and watch. Uh, What God has done in someone's life, that he has uh, buried them, as everyone who shared shared, that our old life is gone, and we've been raised to this new life, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, alive and walking with him. And so, um, also, just the people that shared don't have to be the only ones that get baptized today. Uh, Maybe you have been walking in community for a long time, like Juan has, and you've never been baptized, you've never had this public marriage ceremony or maybe you're even through the stories that have been shared you've been convicted to the core that that jesus actually is the grace and the gift of god for life uh, and today is the day that you get to to stop being your own hero today's the day you get to stop trying to walk and pretend that you're the only, your own hero or somebody else's but that it's jesus alone and so uh, if you're a missional community leader could you stand up right now just as a little help. So if you are someone who, even as I say, wow, what if I got baptized today? That's crazy. I wasn't planning on doing that. You could come and talk to any of these people, perhaps your own missional community leader. Uh, You can also talk to me to explore, hey, I think I might want to be baptized. We'll leave the water out there until we have to go. And you could do it baptized at any point uh, or right after these other people get baptized. That's Just come and talk to one of these people. You guys can sit down. Thank you. Um, Does that all make sense? Yeah? It's a pretty good plan. I just came up with it about five minutes ago. Sweet. Uh, Also, uh, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go and take communion. Uh, The band will lead us in one more song uh, declaring the gospel in us. If you're a parent, go and pick up your children at that point so we can relieve the kids. And then after that song, we'll go outside and uh, we'll do the baptism part of today. So let me pray for us as we go uh, to the table. Jesus, we thank you for this table that you first uh, ate it with friends, with a bunch of people like us who were uh, screw ups, self absorbed, uh, religious people that thought we, uh, you know, figured it all out. You you shared this meal first with disciples just like us. And as you took it, you said, this is the new covenant. This is the new promise that uh, take and eat of me, Uh, that you have fulfilled the law, you fulfilled the rules, you've uh, walked perfectly in submission to the spirit so that we might be raised to new life, that you've resurrected us. And so help us to remember you as we take this, this meal, this bread and this uh, juice, uh, remind us of your ways, of your glory, that you'd be magnified in our hearts and our minds as we chew and as we drink. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.